Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Gen Ed. This week, I am particularly excited to welcome on JJ McCullough onto the podcast, um, a man who I've been following for a decent amount of time on the internet. He is a um, columnist, actually, for the Washington Post and a global opinions columnist. He also has a YouTube channel where he's approaching 300,000 subscribers. Um, and something that I learned fairly recently, he's also something of a political cartoonist and did some cartooning back in the day, um, which I think is super cool. JJ, thank you so much for coming on today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so as I said, I, I've i been following JJ for a little bit now. Um, I We have a lot of similar interests, I would say. JJ, could you explain to everybody real quick what type of content you make on YouTube and kind of generally? So I guess my catchphrase on my YouTube channel is that I say I talk about countries, culture, and Canada. Uh, as you might be able to hear from my, my voice, I am from Canada. I'm from Vancouver, British Columbia. And so I spend a lot of time talking about uh, issues relating to Canadian politics and sort of Canadian civics. But also I try to think about, uh, you know, sort of the wider world and sort of apply some of these uh, theories having to do with, with culture and politics to other international examples. You know, I talk a lot about American culture, obviously, because Canada and the United States are so intertwined in a sort of cultural and political level. But basically, I, I just try to make videos that sort of engage with some of these questions relating to the concept of what it means to like live in a country and how people sort of conceptualize themselves as, as citizens or, or uh, members of a certain common national community. And uh, yeah, so my content kind of goes all over the place as far as that goes. And then in, in sort of in my other life as a, as a columnist, and I guess before then a political cartoonist, although I don't really do that anymore, is uh, I, I think I'm just a much more sort of conventional commentator who just, you know, writes opinions of the sort of the passing political scene and my uh, my opinions on various politicians and public policy and that sort of thing but i do try to keep those two somewhat separate i my my youtube channel is not uh, is not i don't think is an oh, sort of overtly uh, opinion based one so what made you get into um politics uh what interests you what interested you what motivated you to write columns or come up with like political cartoons you know i'm definitely not i don't know a lot about politics or government i'm you know the opposite of dan so i'm really curious <laughs> as to like what got you interested into like this area of study or expertise that you're now in well it was it was honestly and this is kind of like backwards when from the way that I think it's supposed to be but it was honestly the cartooning you know like as I was I've always sort of been interested in cartoons and at one point I sort of became kind of infatuated with the style of of political cartoons but you know I just thought like aesthetically they were a very sort of interesting style of, of cartooning you know with the caricatures and, and this sort of thing and then I kind of you know this is when I was a teenager and then I sort of realized oh I don't really know anything about politics so I can't really make this style of cartoon that I find so compelling. And so I'm like, well, if I learn more about politics then I could actually draw art of, of this sort. And so it was really my desire to kind of make political cartoons kind of almost on an aesthetic level that sort of necessitated learning and becoming more sort of politically literate. And so I did. And then, you know, in time, uh, I used to have a blog about my political cartoons that was, that was popular. I drew cartoons for my college newspaper and stuff. But then, uh, you know, people started saying that, oh, you know, you should write you know, sort of accompanying uh, essays and stuff to sort of supplement your art and sort of maybe contextualize it a bit more for people that are having a hard time understanding the symbolism and whatnot. And so, you know, that's how I kind of got into political writing. And the political writing wound up being much more, uh, much more successful than my cartoons, I'm sad to say. And, uh, and then sort of through political writing and sort of the success of my blog, you know, I started getting picked up by sort of mainstream media outlets here in Canada. And then I started doing television work and, uh, and that sort of thing. And it was, I actually worked for a time for a television station that no longer exists. Uh, it was called Sun News and it shut down in, in 2015. And what is the sort of the notorious uh, story in, in Canada? But once that happened, that was when I made the shift to YouTube because it was like, you know, I've been doing television for five years or so. And so I felt like I was pretty comfortable on camera. And I was like, well, you know, if I'm, 
if I'm comfortable on camera, if I like hearing myself talk, why don't I give this YouTube sort of thing a try? And, you know, I've been doing that for about six years now. So, Like you said, you kind of went backwards where you started with your cartoons and then that got you into politics. I didn't know that. And I think that that's such a, such a kind of interesting, funny story where you entered it. You know, I, I feel like a lot of political pundits very much enter the space trying to be your classic political pundit. They want to get on CNN. They want to be on Fox. They want to be on Tucker Carlson. (laughs) Um, And I find it interesting that you kind of came at it from a different way. And then you kind of stumbled into the more traditional political pundit. And then that kind of evolved from there. Um, I I must say that I... (laughs) Right after high school, I had a very brief attempt at getting into punditry a little bit. I started my own website, which surprisingly um, somehow got some viewers on it. I'm not sure how anybody found this website um, where I was just publishing some of my hot takes um, (laughs) about politics. And I must say um, it was very short lived for a couple of reasons. One, it was very draining. I was going through college at the time and, and trying it and it's very difficult to put out stuff regularly. Um, but then it's also kind of terrifying to post your opinions on the internet, to put your mm-hmm. opinions out in like a public forum where, you know, people are anonymous and people know who you are, but you don't know who they are. And I, I've always been curious for political pundits. How do you put up with, all of the backlash that, you know, inevitably comes your way, because no matter what position you take, no matter how moderate you are, you're going to have people who, who disagree with you and who vehemently disagree with you. And, um, and that, that is only made worse by, by being online. And as you said, your, your political, I mean, your YouTube channel isn't necessarily political, but I'd call it like, politically adjacent you know you're Mm -hmm. talking about culture and and news stuff so how do you deal with the negativity that can come from from people who disagree with you yeah no that's a that's a very good question and that's actually sort of something that i that i wonder about a lot myself you know like i i think of myself like emotionally as being a rather sort of sensitive person for instance (laughs) like i often don't like to watch very sort of emotionally uh intense movies just because they kind of upset me too much so yeah like i am i am sort of relate to that (laughs) yeah no right so it's like i am i'm very vulnerable to this kind of stuff right and so when when people sort of post really nasty things about me it it does get to me and i guess one of the ways i deal with that is you know i just don't i don't read the comments on my youtube or on on youtube i do because on youtube i have mostly nice supportive people and there's not a lot of nasty stuff on youtube but like, say, on, on the Washington Post, for instance, it's sort of it's kind of notorious among my friends just how the comments to my columns seem to be uh, populated sort of entirely by my most vicious enemies. And so, like, as a result, I just don't even bother to read those. And, you know, like, I don't bother to read when people post me on Reddit, because even though that piques my interest, uh, like sort of, you know, we all sort of, I think, on some level want to know what strangers are saying about us. But it's just, you know, a site like Reddit is just so toxic in so many ways. And like the people that are populated are just just very negative and cruel and nasty. So I just kind of like try to avoid uh, engaging with that. And I mean, that might sound sort of cowardly on some level. And I think this is sort of the the dilemma of it, right? It's that you, you don't want to be in a bubble. Like you don't want to sort of feel like you're completely, uh, you know, insulated from anybody except your most sort of fawning sycophants and like if you're doing something wrong there should be some sort of feedback loop in 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 sort of your uh, in your world that can sort of provide you with with some level of criticism but uh but yeah like it's it's the the nastiness is just at such a level beyond that at this point that i think it's it's excusable if people choose to sort of avoid it i mean that said there are definitely people that work or sort of are wired in the other way like you know ben shapiro right like he talks about uh like walk into the fire you know confront your critics i remember i once saw uh 
I once saw Ben Shapiro actually give a speech here in, in, in Vancouver. And, you know, when he had like Q&A time, it was like, if you disagree with me, come to the front of the line, because like, I am so hungry for, for combat and, you know, intellectual conflict. Like, I mean, like, that's, that's fine, I guess. I, I often do wonder, like, how people work that way. Like the kind of thing that I sometimes wonder about is like if people like say him or like I'm sure there's some other sort of pundits we could think of who are just like really combative. You kind of wonder like do they maybe have a source of strength somewhere else in their life that sort of compensates from the sort of vulnerability you sort of feel in those kind of contexts? Like maybe their their home life, like their family is is very strong, or maybe they're just like like so confident at a level that I don't think I am. Like, I think I have, I have self-doubt and stuff. And part of the reason why like really nasty criticism can be very sort of uniquely uh, harmful is because I, I think like if you're a somewhat insecure person, people learn how to target your insecurities and sort of attack you in a way that does sort of make you feel very exposed and, and very, very fragile. So I don't know, but it's, it's, it's a good question. And I think any, I think most pundits, particularly in the inter, 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 internet age, uh, are sort of struggling with this in, in a continuous way. So how would you say you, like, you cope with uh, these like nasty people trying to get under your skin? Do you have like an outlet that um, allows you to try to escape from you know the harsher side of YouTube, what people, like some children nowadays aspire to be a youtuber like what's it like behind the scenes just being an influencer and a youtuber how do you balance your personal life with your work life since you are um pretty popular with so many people and how do you cope with that letting people in yeah, I mean, that's a good question as well. I, I think that um, one sort of strategy that a lot of people who are sort of in the public space, you know, whether or not you're a YouTuber, a columnist, a media person, is you kind of have to learn, uh, you know, where the boundaries are, how much of yourself you're going to expose versus how much of yourself you're, you're going to sort of want to keep uh, private. And that's sort of something that I honestly, I, I struggle with a little bit because I feel like, honestly, like, in the grand scheme of things, I'm probably a person that is inclined to sort of overshare rather than be restrained. What you realize is that sort of like the more you overshare, the more people, you know, have opportunities not only to attack you, but just to kind of be invested in you in, in a kind of way that can sometimes come to feel a little smothering. You know, if people know too much about you and can constantly sort of be bringing up personal things about your life and, and you know, your your just like things about where you live and what your family is like and your entire life history. Like if that kind of stuff is sort of like too widely shared, you know, you can start to feel a little, a little uh, like, like, yeah, just kind of smothered by it. Like in the sense like that there's, there's no clear division between your sort of personal private uh, internal life and then your life as a sort of product to be consumed in the kind of public space. And so like, that's, that's obviously like a balancing act. And I'm not, again, like, I'm not super sure if I've, if I've fully achieved that there's definitely stuff that like, I haven't brought up that like might be of interest to my viewers, but because like, I don't really want them pulling at that particular thread, or I don't want that to sort of be part of my, my public brand. I mean, it's, it, some of these things, you know, they cause me enough uh, stress in my private life. I don't need them to be sort of part of my, uh, of my, of my public role as well. So I don't know. I mean, like a lot of these things, like there is no there is no perfect guidebook to how to be a public figure and to how to manage, you know, the kind of identity as a, you know, as, as, as kind of a degrade celebrity, right? Like <laughs> this is the thing, right? It's like, you know, fame, fame is very relative. And it, it's, it's, it's something that's kind of fascinating to me is that like so many different people can be famous in so many different ways, right? Like you can be like, I'm famous to the 300,000 people that subscribe to me on YouTube, right? Like they see me on the street and it's like, oh, hey, JJ, and this kind of thing. But you know, to like the vast majority of the public, they they don't know or care who I am, right? But, and so it's just kind of like, it's, it's, it's easy to sort of say that because, you know, I'm not as famous as like some Hollywood movie star that therefore I, I, I can't, I have sort of nothing to complain about. But like, every level of fame brings its own struggles because it all is fundamentally the, this concept of being 
recognizable to strangers. And then in turn, those strangers, because they consume so much of your product, having a feeling of some degree of entitlement over you. And that, that is, that's, that's just a challenge, I think, at any level of fame. And I think that, you know, as you, as you get more famous, and I think most of us certainly aspire to that, that, you know, when we're in the public facing career, we want our fame to be sort of steadily increasing. I do think it's very important to sort of try to understand it and try to come up with some ground rules when you're at this kind of low level, because otherwise, you know, God willing, we all become overnight success successes. And then suddenly you, you, you get very anxious and very frustrated and very, you know, upset and all the rest of it, because you realize you didn't sort of formulate a strategy to deal with fame. And now it's, it's kind of too late. I mean, the, the age of the internet and, you know, like massive celebrity culture has created the weirdest relationship that has probably ever ever existed, which is somebody who watches all of somebody's content and, you know, follows them on Instagram, you know, knows every detail about their life. And yet obviously the person that they're following doesn't know them at all. Mm -hmm. And so you have this odd imbalance of, of relationship where you have the person who is consuming the content feels quite close with the creator of the content because they feel that they know them. They feel that they've spent so much time around them. And yet that creator has no idea who they are. And, and, and so I think it creates these very odd interactions where you have one person who's really comfortable around the other and knows the other one seemingly quite well, um, despite having never met them. And then the other who is not comfortable at all around this, this other person, you know, cause they're a total yeah. stranger. And yeah, yeah. that just, that's just such an odd interaction to me. Um, like I, I hear of all these people, like a lot of YouTubers and stuff having weird interactions at like VidCon and stuff with, with fans. And it, it all really derives from this feeling of comfort that comes from feeling like, you know, someone, even if you really don't, because you've only seen their online persona. Um, Have you ever had any just like odd interactions with someone who like recognized you in public or something? I mean, other than, you know, our email interactions, which is (laughs) odd. Um, (laughs) Do you have any experiences like that? Yeah. Like I can give you a good example. Like, you know, I have, you know, I'm single, right. And I'm, date relatively actively and you know i've gone on a couple of dates so i'm gay as well by the way i've I've gone on a few dates with with men who know me from my youtube channel and like that is always a very sort of strange experience because like at one time like initially i kind of uh, this is again this this is my propensity to kind of like overshare but it's like you know it's like at at one time i kind of thought like you you make assumptions about the sort of power imbalance that you assume will will sort of define those kind of interactions so like if I'm dating some guy that that is a fan, you know, quote unquote of my channel, like you assume that it's like, well, I'm sort of in the dominant position because I'm the big important celebrity and, you know, like they're, you know, they're the fan. And so they're in awe of how great I am and this kind of thing. Right. But I, what I've learned is that that's not always the case. Right. And that sometimes like you as the as the celebrity in that interaction can have a great deal of insecurity about trying to impress the other person, like trying to live up to the kind of image that you assume that the other person has of you as someone that's sort of been passively consuming you, uh, your content. Like you don't want to sort of seem, you don't want to seem less confident. You don't want to seem less smart, less sophisticated, less sort of put together because ultimately like the image that you're putting out for yourself in your media is, you know, it's very managed, you know, it's very curated and edited and you're, putting the absolute best version of yourself out there. And then to sort of see yourself uh, in a kind of more unguarded, more natural uh, state, like that can sort of be a little bit, I think, uncomfortable. And I think that this is something that like a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of quote unquote famous people, you know, whether they're YouTubers or whatever, uh, can feel a little bit taken aback by because they feel insecure that they're perhaps not when they interact with fans and whatnot, as much as there is kind of like an emphasis on the fans being weird or, or whatnot. I think that that can often sort of mask a, a nervousness that a lot of the creators have about maybe not 
living up to the image that their fans have built up uh, of them in their minds. It, it's funny because like I, bef I have some sort of experience from this from my sort of before life when I was in cartoons. So like I would go to like cartoon conventions a lot, like these comic book shows and stuff. And, you know, there'd be in those days, there was like celebrities in like the web comics world, you know, people that had online comics or, or, or sort of standard comics and that kind of stuff. And I, I sort of saw like that these were people that were very famous to a sort of select community. And they had similar kind of insecurities when dealing with their fans as well, like that their comics were very funny. And so like the fans expect the creator to be very funny in a similar sort of like spontaneous way, or they expect the creators to be kind of like cool. And, and you even get into stuff like, you know, how you look, like you have to be like as aesthetically presentable as your art is aesthetically presentable, like all of these kinds of things. Like these, these are kind of just really big, I think, universal questions that arise at any level of fame in any realm not just YouTube or, or journalism, but like even, yeah, I'm sure writers have to deal with this, this kind of stuff, you know, people that are famous in, in academia, like it, it's, uh, it's, it's kind of just a universal contrast that has to, or a universal sort of uh, theme that just do deals with the concept of, of, of power imbalances and emotional uh, power imbalances. Yeah, I feel like being under the public eye would be a huge responsibility and be pretty scary and you mentioned before that you um actually worked on like television um how did you transition from like uh drawing political cartoons to writing columns and then to do journalism um you know what was that transition like to go into video and into a greater expansion of your um like public realm well um sort of like i said it was mostly through the success of sort of my 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 because my, my cartoons always had sort of political themes and then sort of through the political themes exploring those themes in greater depth in in writing was sort of how on my blog was sort of how i got picked up by more sort of serious editors and you know like the canadian media market is relatively small so uh it's 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 not as hard, I think, to sort of move through the ranks quickly in, in a smaller country like this. Although I think a similar thing happens in, in America. But uh, but yeah, I mean, like it it. I'm sorry. What was your uh, what were you sort of trying to get at a little bit? I just kind of lost this the plot. Oh yeah, what was it like? Uh, you know, going from writing columns to then having your face on television. Yeah, 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 yeah. Now. Yeah, I mean, it's it's all it's all very similar, right? Like, it's all similar in the sense that you are, uh, you know, you're putting yourself out there, you're, you're putting your views on the issues out there for public consumption. So I, I think it's, it's not, it's not that dramatic. Because like, if we're going back to sort of like, what are these sort of emotional sort of roots of this whole sort of thing? It's like you you start off as somebody that's very confident about sort of asserting what you believe. And you know, because the cartoons that you draw when you're drawing political cartoons, they're very opinionated. They're, you know, they're hopefully not too blunt, but sometimes they are. And so you just sort of become comfortable as somebody who's in sort of command of his opinions. And believes that other people are entitled or would benefit from hearing them and you know and that sort of animates the style of writing you do and it animates how you carry yourself on 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 television and all that kind of thing i mean obviously we work in different mediums that exercises different muscles you know when you're on television for instance you have to be articulate and sort of quickly spoken and have a sense of sort of timing and, and sort of physical presentation in a way you obviously don't if you're if you're a writer or a cartoonist but I feel like that some of those skills are, are, are fairly transferable and that a lot of people that are good in one realm of commentary are generally good at multiple realms. Because I think that in addition to the confidence, just like having organized thoughts is obviously a very big part of, of being a sort of public commentator. And I think that if you can organize your thoughts well in, in text, you know, you can generally organize them pretty well when you're, when you're speaking not universally the case but i think it's the case more often than not so i guess i would sort of say that uh, that moving from one medium to another hasn't been as sort of jarring or discombobulating as as i think some people might expect speaking of putting yourself out there and backlash again um 
You've been openly gay for quite some time now, and while you were a political commentator, you fell pretty decisively on the political right. Did how how did your sexuality interact with your career? Did you feel that it had a net positive benefit and that negative benefit actually that that might not be a great question um that might simplify things too much no but... i mean i think it's i think it's fair like i think this is sort of something that people are often sort of curious about me because it's like yeah i have sort of identified more historically as being sort of on the center right i mean we can talk about sort of how i conceptualize myself these days which i think is just <laughs> a bit but uh but no i mean like certainly i think that you know, like, I think that there are, frankly, a lot of people on, on the right. Uh, for every homophobe that exists, and there are certainly plenty of those, there are lots of other sort of conservatives who are deeply insecure about being thought of as homophobic, right? <laughs> so, like, on some level, they want to have, like, a gay on their side. And I feel like I kind of benefited from that in, in my early days of, of sort of political commentary. It's like, we're not homophobic. Look at all of these great gay people that are on our side. Look at J.J. McCullough. He's a he's a gay artist. You can't get more non-stereotypical than that. So, like, I think I I think I benefited from, from that a bit. But, I mean, at the same time, like, I don't want to, like, minimize this. And I do think that some gay conservatives are a little too quick to minimize it. Like, they're obviously, like, a huge, huge part of, of conservatism in both Canada and America has been sort of the presence of very conservative, you know, evangelical Christians who have, as one of sort of the core tenets of their sort of politicized understanding of their faith and opposition to, to homosexuality and to to gay marriage and to sort of just, you know, anti-discrimination policies and, and just sort of any other kind of manifestation of, of homosexuality in sort of the public sphere, they are generally against it, right? And I think like that that's sort of something that has to be grappled with. And that is a, that is a tension and it is, it is sort of something that I think has to be honestly addressed. And I think that gay conservatives have to view that as part of their, uh, of part of their role in politics, right? Like in the sense that we are all sort of, uh, you know, we're all represent representatives of our of the various interests that that we that we that we embody as individuals leading our elaborate lives, right? Like I think that it's uh, I think that it's important for gay conservatives to not just kind of like roll over and just you know, give the the right wing a pass for being great on gay issues when the, when they're obviously <laughs> not. Because I and I I think that you know I think that gay issues matter. I think actually, frankly, that being a gay man and i think you know to a large point we're sort of you know most of the heavy lifting over the 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 interests of people like me is kind of done but i think that when we think of it like the way that the trans issues are now manifesting in in sort of the public space like my like i consider myself to be very pro-trans and pro-trans rights and, and that's informed by my experiences of being just being a gay man in the you know in the uh, in the early 2000s when a lot of similar sort of very vicious public discussions were being had over over the rights of, of homosexual people so yeah i mean it's it's uh it i guess i would just say that it, it does it does inform my politics and it's something that certainly like much more as i get older as well like I, it's it's sort of curious like i take it probably more serious more seriously now than than i did when i was perhaps a bit younger i guess just because i've i've realized that the stakes are maybe a little bit a bit higher than i than i realized when i was you know in a sort of safe and friendly bubble at college or you know when i was hanging out with nothing but cartoonists and stuff you know a fun fact about dan is i learned recently that in high school uh he actually was um the club like founder of like the democrats club and then like the republican club am i correct dan what yeah, was the I name of it so I, I was president of the Teenage Republicans, and then I, I wasn't president of the Teenage Democrats, but um, I helped found the club at my school because I lived in such a conservative area that yeah. there hadn't been a Teenage Democrats club at my school for like 20 years. Okay. So <laughs> I helped refound that um, because I was kind of a centrist and really appreciated both, you know, the, the interaction of both sides. Mm -hmm. uh, and yeah, I mean, that, that just shows my political nerdiness, but <laughs> you know, I, I do have to say I'm probably more, um, left leaning when it comes to 
um, certain topics, probably just because I see things from a more clinical standpoint. Um, mm. I don't want to get too touchy into certain um, touchy-feely topics, <laughs> but I, you know, this is a good conversation to have with an intellectual conversation just about um, different sides and. You know, I don't think, you know, you JJ being a gay conservative, like that's not a stereotypical, you know, I can't even get the words out of my head, but you know. <laughs> um, when you think conservative, you yeah, don't think yeah. again. <laughs> no, no yeah, for but sure. It's, but it's really um, admirable to, for you to stand out there under the public eye and bring attention to something that the public doesn't usually see. Um, JJ, I, I mean, this may be too much to ask for this podcast, but you had mentioned that your political beliefs have somewhat shifted a little bit over the course of your career. Um, if you could, and if you're, and if you feel comfortable um, in somewhat vague terms, could you describe kind of that shift that has occurred? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I mean, we can we can go into this as much as you want. I mean, I'm exactly. a political commentator, right? I could talk about politics for a living, right? Like, it's not it's not taboo at all for me. But it's like I think that like many sort of conservative-minded people, and like I was always a fairly you know moderate or centrist conservative. I think. I mean, I think like you know I. I I certainly heard the arguments of all sides and there were certainly times where I was sort of reading more kind of, you know, harder right stuff, but ultimately I was kind of turned off by it. But, you know, that, that said that I think that as somebody who I think is more sort of moderately inclined, I, I do think that like the Donald Trump years were a real sort of <laughs> test, you know, and I think that, and I think that, you know, like the thing about Donald Trump and, and sort of the movement that he's built, that obviously still very much sort of survives to this day I think it, in some ways, it, it sort of exposed on a sort of like deeper kind of sociological level, psychological level, like kind of what conservatives actually want, like in terms of like the conservative electorate, the conservative base, such as it is, like sort of, all, and, and like this is one of the wonderful things about American politics is that the American political system is extraordinarily democratic, much more democratic than I think Americans and give it credit for right so in the sense that like if if one style of politics is is popular that style of politics will sort of often inevitably rise to the top and i think that the fact that donald trump has emerged as this domineering figure in the republican party to the point where now like to this day like every sort of politician who's a republican has to go out of their way to say how much they love him and kiss the ring and you know all of this kind of thing vote against the uh the uh, investigation of the uh, of the Capitol riot, you know, all this kind of stuff, right? Like all this kind of stuff that comes from the premise of like, well, we have to keep Trump happy and that we can't sort of disturb the kind of the Trump sort of narrative about, you know, America and American politics and, and Republican priorities and so forth. Like, I think that that, that has kind of shown that there is a kind of, uh, I don't know, like that there's a kind of like reactionary kind of, crude element to right-wing politics that is not really my cup of tea so to speak like to me like politics like politics of conservatism should be about something more than just sort of hating a sort of broad expansively defined sort of left right and i think that that's really all you're kind of seeing in, in sort of like the trump style flavor of conservatism right it's just like you just kind of like you draw a huge circle around like one half of the country you declare that country the left and you sort of just say that half of the country hates America. They just want to impose communism and enslave us all. And they're probably in cahoots with pedophiles and Satanists and all of this kind of thing. Right. Like, and I'm like, this is, and this is not even like an exaggeration, right? Like this is increasingly yeah. the sort of rhetoric that is, that is very mainstream. Like even among people who uh, some time ago would have considered themselves a sort of moderate, uh, moderate Republicans. And so it's like, that's fine. Like there's obviously an appetite, a huge appetite for that style of politics that is extremely combative and defined mostly by just sort of really sort of searing animus for, for the other side as they imagine it. And, 
and sort of an open-mindedness about conspiracies and conspiracy theories, which is something that I have always been like very profoundly allergic to. And so it's been very disturbing to sort of see con uh, conspiratorial sort of thinking really rise to prominence in, in the conservative movement as well. So like all of these kinds of things, like it's, it's, it just kind of adds up to a, a political brand that I just increasingly don't really see myself in. You know, like obviously there's 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 a lot of sort of obnoxiousness on the left and particularly the far left as well. And that some of these kinds of things become kind of identity politics kind of unto themselves, right? Where it's like you're so you've been so emotionally invested as considering yourself, you know, on one side that you'll sort of never allow yourself to admit that you're drifting more towards the other. And I'm I'm certainly that way as well. And then of course there's like you know, the fact that I'm a Canadian and there's a lot of sort of like very esoteric sort of Canadian uh, issues and sort of the left-right divide that don't really have an equivalence in America and that I, I still consider very important to my own identity as a citizen of this country, which sort of complicates matters further. But definitely, like, I, I feel like the brand of conservatism, the brand of being on the right has become much more tainted to people of sort of my disposition and lifestyle and 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 so forth so i i'm a little bit like people can sort of classify me however they want but i'm i'm and this also sounds like such an obnoxious sort of tiresome thing to say but honestly like i am a little bit less interested in labels than i used to be i'm more interested yeah. in just like trying to be honest and just trying to observe the political scene in in as honest terms as i can and if uh and if you know that makes me easy for some people to classify, so be it. But it's 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 less of something that I'm terribly interested in myself. Hey, sometimes labels just create that division, you know. Yeah. Um, and the thing about politics is, most politicians they didn't study politics, you know. Um, they went from all realms from business to medicine history you know um what has your experience been like um your educational experience and what led you to coming up with like political cartoons i guess just you know uh well i mean i studied i studied politics when i was in when i was in college um i like i said i was it was really sort of like just the aesthetics of political cartooning and like my desire to become more familiar with that art form that kind of got me into politics in the first place. But, um, but certainly like 9-11, you know, like I'm, I'm sort of 37 years old. So 9-11 happened when I was in my senior year of high school. And that was like, you know, a very sort of traumatizing event, obviously. And it, it made politics seem very important. You know, if I was sort of on the fence about the importance of politics relative to other things, I think that, you know, the 9-11 and then sort of like the talk of, you know, the Iraq war and all of these other kinds of things that just really sort of seemed like they were going to be the generationally defining sort of themes of, of, of life on this planet for the next, uh, you know, for the next however long, right? Like that that sort of really... Uh, infused in me a kind of sense that this was a important thing to devote your life to and to sort of be preoccupied with and to, uh, as an adult, to sort of try to make some sort of profession around. So that was, that was when I talk about my origin story, yeah, definitely 9-11 and sort of the post 9-11 world was, was a big sort of part in, in sort of persuading me to, uh, to stick with that path. It's funny though, because, you know, we're getting close to the, uh, the 20-year anniversary of 9-11 now and in some ways it, it kind of feels a little bit more quaint like just a lot of those uh, kind of issues that were raised in the aftermath of 9-11 are just really not present in our politics anymore in part because I think there was just a lot of exhaustion from, from the sort of the, the war on terror era in its sort of peak and I think that also I mean this is another sort of way in which you you start to sort of second guess your own identity so it's like if your political identity was sort of founded in the context of a political circumstance that no longer exists, well, then maybe it's sort of time to recalibrate. And I think that a sort of a lot of older Republicans are going through a similar sort of thing. Like when you look at the so-called never Trump uh, Republicans, you know, who are generally kind of like older uh, sort of folks who often sort of came to their understanding of what it meant to be 
on the right or to be politically active in general was often very bound up in like the Cold War, right? Like sort of being involved in this in this sort of epic geopolitical struggle against the Soviet Union. And like that was how they sort of came to identify with one party over another. But again, like obviously we're very, we're even farther removed from the Cold War than we are from 9-11. And so I think that that also makes people sort of start start to second guess a little bit like, well, why did I choose to get into politics in the first place? What seemed important at the time? What what sort of calculations did I make in, in, in determining which side I wanted to be on? And are any of those variables still present? And if they're not, then maybe it's time to sort of re-examine some things. I think that's a really important point that you bring up and a very interesting point that these generation defining events or moments, so to speak, don't always end up defining a whole generation, as in they only end up lasting for maybe a couple decades before their effects are kind of removed a little bit. I mean, with the Cold War, basically, I, I would say that Cold War era politics essentially became irrelevant in the 90s. And, um, and then moving forward from there, you have, as you said, all these older Republicans who their political identity was defined on this, you know, existential battle against communism that was no longer really much of a threat. And then you brought up 9-11 and how, um, and how the war on terror, it, you know, lost steam very rapidly. And we're now reaching hopefully the end of what a lot of people have been calling another one of these generational events, this you know, the, the COVID-19 pandemic, you know, I, I wasn't even born for 9-11. I was born a couple of months after 9-11. So wow. obviously it has, it, it has very little influence on my political experience. By the time I was old enough to really be formulating my opinions, you know, most of the war on terror was already wrapping down. We were taking troops out of the Middle East. It, you know, pretty much all politicians were unanimously saying that we need to get out. Um, yeah. And I I find it interesting as, you know, a, a politically interested person to see how this affects my generation and to see if this same effect occurs where there seems to be a delay in when the events kind of influence begins to wane and when people kind of stop talking about it, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I would think that, uh, I mean, I mean, you can correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, you're obviously closer to this than, than that, but sort of like when you think of it, like sort of like the defining uh, sort of political moment of your generation, like you would think it would sort of be more bound up in sort of like the Obama to Trump kind of transition and sort of like the kind of cultural and political forces and debates that were very prevalent in, in sort of that era, a lot of which involved, you know, questions of, uh, you know, the diversity of American society and sort of the way in which American society is going to, uh, you know, live up or not live up uh, to its sort of promises of being sort of inclusive and tolerant to, to all of this with the different component uh, groups, racial groups, you know, being fairer to men and women and like, you know, sort of what is... I think I, like the term identity politics is, I think, become a little bit weaponized and a little bit sloppy in, in its sort of application. But I, I do think that like when we look back, you could sort of see the kind of late Obama and certainly the entirety of the Trump years as being a time in which like a lot of these sort of questions of, of identity and diversity in America were like really, really at the forefront to a point where people, a lot of people obviously now assume that this is just going to be the way that American politics are going to be forever, right? Like everybody's always going to be obsessed with Me Too and Black Lives Matter and, you know, uh, you know, sort of things like this and that we're always going to think of like the Republicans as being the racist party and the Democrats as being the crazy woke party. And like, that's just kind of going to be what American politics is going to be for, you know, ever, right? But I think that like that could be a very transient sort of phase as, as well. I, I don't know, like, does that ring true to you as a, as a younger person? I, I mean, I would say it definitely rings true. The, I, I feel that the, in particular, the, the Trump, um, the Trump divide in the Republican Party, I think will be one of these events. Um, and certainly, certainly, as you were mentioning, the identity politics, where 
I mean, pretty much my whole political career, if you will, to this point, which I mean, given is only like eight years, but um, has been defined, as you said, by kind of this battle um, between, you know, it, it's how I got into politics in the first place, really. I was radicalized on YouTube by, you know, the classic like SJW destroyed videos <laughs> yes, um, yes, exactly. that, that, you know, like 11 year old me just ate up and really radicalized me. And then, you know, I obviously moderated from that point, but, um, it, it really does ring true to me that it is a, a, a division that, um, that, yeah, as you were mentioning, seems like to me, seems like it defines politics. It defines American politics. And it's the same thing for me right now with the Trump division in the Republican party, where it seems like the Republican party, at least for as long as Trump is alive, um, will be defined by this division between the never Trumpers and the QAnoners, um, who, who will, will just be locked in the struggle forever. And, um, and to a lesser extent, the, the battle between the progressive end of the Democratic Party and the more traditional end. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I, <laughs> um, these, these, these fights are, are in some ways, uh, like some of the, like, if we sort of think of them in a kind of like broader ideological way, like the fights for the soul of the American political parties is obviously like a very long sort of running. Thing, yeah. Right. And then sort of the, the tension between you know, the far right and the far left versus the more sort of moderate, pragmatic sort of factions. Like that's sort of something that's, that's never going to fully go away. Although the sort of thing that I just kind of think, think, think makes it a little bit different is that you respond to kind of what works, right? And I think that yeah. the Republican Party, as it sort of has gotten more sort of QAnon-ish, as it's sort of like mainstream, like there hasn't been as much sort of negative uh, consequence to that as I think that certainly a lot of the never Trump Republicans would have assumed, right? So yeah. it's like the, the pro-Trump uh, Republicans, the real hardcore like Trump fanatics, like they love the, I mean, obviously, and not unjustifiably so, they, they're very proud of the fact that Trump won, right? Because they say that like the fact that Trump won is enormous vindication that their sort of flavor of politics actually has a lot more going for it, electorally at least, than the alternative. And so that in that sort of sense, it is not like purely irrational for Republicans to be clinging to Trump because he is very, very popular with most Republican voters, right? In a way that the Democrats don't really sort of seem to face a sort of similar uh, issue. The far left of that party seems to actually be one of their biggest sort of electoral liabilities and something that you know turns off a lot of voters. So again, it's like, you know, these tensions exist, but parties ultimately respond to where their, to where their incentive sort of structures are, are coming from. For a long time, I think sort of mainstream Republicans and mainstream sort of American political observers sort of assume that kind of like the more crankish far right was a bigger electoral liability than it wound up uh, being, right? The Republican Party is still remaining, you know, I mean, they're, they're doing worse than Democrats, but they're still like quite strong and like people speak very seriously of the idea that you know they could win the midterms in 2022 that they could win back the white house in 2024 like these are not sort of things that you think about a party that's on 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 death's door so and like but all this kind of stuff like this is it's it's and this is important to understand as well like it's important to be able to make a distinction between something that works electorally that works strategically and something that is like morally good Right. Yeah. <laughs> like in my opinion, like the the takeover by the QAnon sort of wing of the Republican Party, and to get like a you know Alex Jones elected president or something like that, <laughs> like that would be like terrible for America as in sort of my definition of, of what makes America a great country and the kind of future I want to see for America. But on the other hand, it's like to me that sounds very plausible. Like I could imagine. I mean, this seems very dark, but I could imagine Alex Jones doing well if he ran for president. I could imagine. Marjorie oh, that's Taylor a terrible Green. thought. No, I, like I, I like I, I think Marjorie Taylor Greene, for instance, the, the Frankish <laughs> Congresswoman. Like I think that she might run for president and might be very competitive in certainly in the Republican primary. Like this is, but like this is the sort of thing is that I think a lot of times people, when they're doing political analysis, 
they kind of want to assume that that which is morally good will also be sort of politically salient or politically, uh, you know, popular. And I think that's not that's not always the case. I mean, politics have been changing since like they first established like the parties, you know, the uh, Democratic Republican Party and the Federalists like eventually came Democrats and Republicans, but the values have changed so much from then and they're going to continue to change. And I think there's some beauty and appreciation of understanding that, you know, these big events influence and impact us and these intellectual conversations that we have and just trying to understand the other side, whatever that side may be, can bring us together and hopefully close that divide that these um, titles may have. And, you know, I think there is hope and, you know, we're all learning and no one knows what they're doing, but I think together we're, we're it won't be too bad. You know, a little bit of an optimist yeah. side, but I think there's some realism too, you know. Um, I think we're wrapping up this episode, but I want to thank you so much, JJ, for coming on and diving a little bit deeper into like some of these political contexts of today. And it's really important to talk about um, such things. And um, Dan, yeah. do you have any final words or... Um, not really. As you said, we, we need to get things wrapped up. We got to let JJ get back to his day. Um, <laughs> all I would say is if you haven't gone and checked out JJ's YouTube channel, be sure to go, look, go take a look. Um, it's super fun. He does a lot of stuff with, um, culture and kind of news. And like I said, some politically adjacent stuff. Um, it, it was very interesting to me as an American to start watching his channel and become a little bit more familiar with Canadian politics and the issues that define our neighbors to the north um, that I don't think many Americans know about. Um, so it's certainly very interesting. I would heavily encourage all of you guys to go check it out. Well, thanks so much for having me. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, for sure, JJ. Um, also, for everybody listening, please go and check out wavelearningfestival.org um, to go sign up for some free classes, some free courses. Um, if you are a political savant um, like JJ, I'm sure that we have classes for you in philosophy and politics. Um, I know that we have a summer camp coming up soon that is free that you can go sign up for now at our, at our website. Um, so be sure to go check that out. And I mean, I'm excited to talk to you guys all next week. <laughs> and even if you aren't um, politically inclined like myself, <laughs> I would highly encourage taking one of our summer classes as it is important for ourselves to broaden our horizons in whatever way that may be. So thank you guys. We'll see you next week.